you know, historically speaking, you can see this division all the way back to the first heretic, Marcy. You know, old, mean God, yep. nice, uh, cool, hip Uncle Jesus. Um, you know, he beats the mean God, and so now you can get beer when you're 16. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast, where we talk about, well, lots of stuff. Anglicanism, the gospel, culture, the church, the Bible, theology, all the Sunday school stuff. I'm Nick Lannon at uh, Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And joining me today, as always, are J.D. Koch, Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Matt Kennedy of Church of the Good Shepherd Anglican in Binghamton, New York. How are you gentlemen doing today? Very good. Doing great, Nick. I looked at my weather app today, and after a day or two of cloudiness, I've got eight straight days of thunderstorms. So I need you guys to be extra on your game to get me through. Where, 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 do, you, where do you live again? You're in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's just, it's just you guys and New the York chosen state. Yeah. Yes. We were like, well, just, we, we were uh, below freezing last week. So. Oh, no. I was just, I was just told that um, this begins the official, uh, although highly unlikely, uh, but this begins the official hurricane season here in South Carolina. Oh, so okay. that would be, that would be a wonderful uh, insult to injury right now. <laughs> Stay at home as your home is destroyed. There you go. So, um, <laughs> Shelter but, uh, in place. There we go. <laughs> shelter in place. That's right. Well, Listen, I'm almost done with my bomb shelter I've been digging. So anyway, another issue. I wanted to start uh, today's episode by telling you guys a story, a brief one. A while ago, uh, very shortly after I left the Episcopal Church, I was trying to meet as many Anglicans as I could. I found I didn't know any. And I met uh, for coffee the rector of another ACNA church. And during the course of that conversation, we each shared the distinctives about our churches, what we would want someone else to know about our church. And he shared with me three things. One was that his church was very Anglo-Catholic, which I thought was fine. Uh, second, he said that they were very charismatic in their worship practice. Again, fine. And uh, third, he said that he completely rejected penal substitutionary atonement. And this, this sort of threw me for a loop, I must admit. I've, of course, some familiarity with the theories of atonement from school, but penal substitution had always been presented as at least one of the major ones, if not the major one, for uh, conservative or biblically orthodox expressions of the faith. I mean, you hear Rob Pell on Oprah saying something about divine child abuse, but um, this was a man in my own biblically orthodox church sipping his coffee and completely rejecting the idea that Jesus took the punishment that I deserved on the cross. And so I wondered if we might talk about that today. And I thought before we start talking about that easy rejectability of the substitutionary atonement, I wonder if I could ask JD uh, to sort of run through some of the, you know, for the listeners, wink, wink, um, some of the major theories of the atonements or where they came from, where they find their New Testament warrant uh, before we talk about the atonement today and specifically in Anglicanism and other churches. Jay, sure. you want to help us out? Sure. I mean, I, uh, and Matt, feel free to jump in when you want. But I mean, broadly speaking, um, and, I've, and I'm taking this actually on good account, I've been rereading um, Essential Truths for Christians, which is by John Rogers. It's an exposition of the 39 articles. And so he lays this out in light of Article 2 about Jesus, uh, specifically looking at uh, the fact that Article 2 says, 
the end of it, whereas one of Christ's very God and very man who truly suffered was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but for all actual sins of men. And so we can talk about that specifically, the reconciliation of God uh, to us, which is part under contention. But but he points out in these things, and these, these um, sort of in my way of thinking have been repristinated in a book that I was in, uh, introduced to back in college called The Nonviolent Atonement, uh, which was uh, by a guy named Weaver. And in it, he makes the argument that was also made by a man named Gustav Allin, or Allin, in um, 1930s, I believe, uh, called Christus Victor. Victor, right. And so roughly, broadly speaking, there are three, three general uh, theories, and one sort of understood to be sort of a classic or, or attributed to the church fathers. Um, and that's what uh, Allin's book was about, was the Christus Victor, the ransom theory, that we were, that when the, we fell into sin, we had become subject to evil and death, as we say in our, uh, in our Eucharistic prayer, and therefore we were captives to sin, death, and the devil. And so Jesus came in sort of this cosmic battle, uh, defeats Satan, sin, death, and the devil, and frees us, thereby being ransomed. And that's a lot of um, beautiful imagery course. And there's a lot in the Bible to commend itself to that. You know, we're talking about being reconciled to God. We're talking about him being a a ransom for our sins. We're talking about, you know, even the Old Testament, the typology of, you know, my deliverer is coming. I mean, there's wonderful, wonderful biblical warrant for that. And so there's, that's one sort of quote unquote theory. Then there's the, what's we're looking at sort of the, the, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is what uh, we're talking about today, which is um, usually put back to St. Anselm, although it's, of course it's in the scripture too. And it has this, this sort of forensic penal nature to it. There's a, there's a justice that's being satisfied. There's a punishment that's being meted out. There's a wrath that's being, that's being addressed. And there's a, um, there's a substitute at the heart of this atonement that God for you, that there is uh, he died for you so that you did not have to suffer and die in a similar way. And the and wrath then, uh, referring to is the wrath of God. That's right. He has appeased the wrath of God. He has been the atonement for sin. This is um, the penal substitution. And then finally, there's one uh, called the moral influence, so it's generally called. Um, and that's just the idea that Jesus died to show us how to love people. He died to, you know, greater love had no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. And so Jesus was the greatest man who had the most friends and he laid down his life for us all. And so therefore go and do likewise. Now, um, so those are the three theories and John Rogers points out, and I think uh, in where I land the plane also is that um, none of them are wrong. It would be only incorrect to reject any of the three and it would be incorrect. I think to, well, I think the proper hierarchical ordering of them is that penal substitution is the umbrella under which the other effects of it, i.e. the ransom and the moral influence, can be, can be held. And I think that um, the scriptural warrant is clear. I think that the tradition is full-throated on this, particularly within uh, Reformation churches. And so um, to reject penal substitutionary atonement seems to be uh, out, outside the bounds of classic Anglican theology, particularly as it is, as it is enshrined and, and protected in the 39 Articles and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. But that's, so that's how, those are, those are the general theories, and that's a place to start. Matt, I mean, you've got thoughts on this, I'm sure. Yeah, I think, I think when I listen to people who reject penal substitution, they'll say several things. They'll say, well, first of all, there's no historical uh, root for that doctrine. It goes right back, or no, no, no root, root that goes back to the fathers and to uh, the early church. It just, it, it just originated whole cloth, either with Anselm and his satisfaction theory or with, or with Calvin. You know, right. And, and usually they'll say Calvin because 
if they really hate the penal substitutionary theory, uh, theory they're going to want to uh, associate it with people who they believe the mass populace won't like. So it's, it's Calvin's theory, right? That's right. It, it's his fault. Um, and then secondly, we'll say, well, and, and, and what it's produced is uh, a more violent Christianity that, right. that enables uh, abuse and uh, even physical abuse because it presents God the Father as an abusive father to uh, toward his son um uh, yeah divine child abuse divine that's how child it's often, abuse exactly that's right. so the effort is um, to defend the lord in some way yeah yeah they're, they're, they're trying to defend his 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 love um and and they're saying the presentation of the, of the theory of penal substitution is is contrary to that then you know some uh, brian's on they just listened to a debate of his this morning with michael brown where he uh likened the God who we would recognize as our Lord, a pagan deity who needs a virgin, you know, thrown into yes. the volcano to appease his blood bloodlust. You know, and it's, it's, yeah, that's that's the common argument. Is that right. we are falling into the propitiatory, you know, taking the wrath of God, you know, that sort of like the smoking volcano. That somehow that this is a paganized version. That this is often what you hear um, that the Christians have have not been freed. People who believe in this this um, this penal substitution and. and the problem with that, of course, I mean, we can speak to it, is that, you know, pagan deities were capricious and mercurial and not just. I mean, that's the thing. Like uh, Moloch, you know, and, and Baal and the va- various um, gods to whom, you know, people's heads are chopped off at tops of volcanoes um, are not the holy, just, perfect, righteous God uh, who is. And so this is, is, yes, there are similarities. I mean, that's the thing, like the Bible, I mean, the gospel didn't come to recreate the entire structure of humanity, it came to redeem it. You know, it didn't come to supplant um, all of our notions of of justice and and uh, what is good, true, and beautiful, but it came to reveal what is actually good, true, and beautiful. And so the fact that there's a type and shadow, as it were, you know, I mean, like, think about baptism. Like, you know, the cleansing of oneself has always had a ritual, right, in many different religions. Now, does that mean that it is salvific? It's you know, or, right. It's a- exactly. But we have bap- <laughs> baptized right. it, as it were, and, <laughs> and revealed its true nature. And yeah. so I think that's why to reject the idea that sin or or that gods require sacrifice um, just out of out of hand because it has similarities to a uh, pagan practice is is not done in any other capacity so why would we do it in this well wouldn't you say that this rejection reveals a, a really shallow or even a misunderstanding of how the trinity works that this isn't the father punishing the son, that this is our Lord and Savior taking something onto himself? That's right. I, I think that's right. I think, you know, if you listen to them, what one of the things they'll, they'll try to do is is present the, the penal theory as if, you know, okay, God's really angry. So he's going he's gonna to pull some innocent, totally innocent guy off the, uh, standing off the side from the crowd, pull him in, you know, exhaust his anger on that poor guy, the poor innocent guy. The reality is God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, that that it was the father and the son together acting in concerts to take to to take sin upon themselves or the son takes sin upon himself and and endure his own justice. (laughs) It's not it's not as if we're looking at um, a division in the Godhead or any kind of disunity in the Godhead even. It's a, it's a it's a united decision to to offer 
for the son to offer himself, um, the father to exhaust wrath that against the sin that the son has taken upon himself. And it, it's not a random, hey, I'm going to punish this guy. Right. I'm going right. to whack this guy because of what these other people did. That's it's right. just a strange way of looking at it. And I think, I'll tell you, I mean, I've, I've, I've put this on Facebook several times. I put it on uh, Twitter. I said, I've not yet, and this includes even scholars who I've read who, who dispute the penal substitutionary theory. I've not read a single person who, who, who rejects it, who's able to accurately describe it without, without sinking into uh, caricature, uh, straw man. It, you know, it always comes out to mean, brutal God punishing some poor victim or uh, the pagan, the pagan God. Well, I've wrestled with this my entire adult life to a certain degree because I, I, I came into um, sort of Anglicanism, as I said before, via um, the reformers, in particular Cranmer and justification by faith and sort of this distinction between law and gospel and ran immediately into these conversations um, and ended up writing my, my doctorate on, in, in part, some of this discussion surrounding God's wrath and how do we to understand his wrath in the world? Because there's been a, a centuries old, if not longer, um, argument about how how his wrath can actually be seen if we know it rightly in service of his love and therefore can be seen as a, as a means of his love, which really stretches the, the sort of semantic domain of the word wrath. You know, like at some point, this doesn't feel like you're loving me. You know, it doesn't, doesn't feel. Um, and so there's been, but it's always in an attempt to sort of, to, to hold on fast, I believe, to the right confession, which God is love. You know, that this is, the, we, we want to affirm this. We want to affirm that he loves the world, that he gave his only begotten son and so forth. So you look at them, you know, historically speaking, you can see this division all the way back to the first heretic, Marcy, you know, old, mean God, yep. nice, uh, cool, hip Uncle Jesus. Um, you know, he beats the mean God. And so now you can get beer when you're 16. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, but the point is, there's always been, I think, a right pull. So, I mean, I wrestled. I wrote an un unreadable book about <laughs> this very question because, you know, a man named Carl Hull famously wrestled with this in the turn of the 19th century in his, his reintroduction to Luther. And Carl Barth wrote a uh, famous essay called Gospel and Law, trying to sort of subsume everything under this banner of love. And then I ran across this man named Gerhard Abeling, who was no evangelical to be sure, but he had some good insights. And so um, one of the things that he said, which became sort of the, the, the focus for my, my life, was that there are two different ways of doing theology. One that can reconcile wrath and love by means of uh, sort of mental effort, you know, sort of a system and one that holds that tension by faith. And he said, those are two separate ways of doing theology. And for me, when I think of the atonement debate, I think that, that when you come into it with a fundamental idea that you are going to defend God against your sense of who he should be mm -hmm. versus you're simply going to confess what he has revealed himself to be in all of its mysterious splendor, um, those are two different ways of doing it. And so when I come into these debates, you can write off the, the sort of easy uh, calculus, which I think is, is sort of easy to do. You know, you're so bad, God's so good, Jesus was better than you are, therefore X plus Y, you know, equals Z. 
And it's like, well, there's more to it than that. Like, let's, you know, that's, that's, that it's much more of a mystery than that, but it's not less than that, you know? And so let's say that, and let's also say that we were, we were enslaved and ransomed. Let's also say that we were, let's say all of it, but let's not forget to say all of it. And I think when people have this idea that they, they have to protect or defend God against himself, then they end up, end up creating a caricature of, of him that looks a lot like them, you know, the famous, right. um, the famous Jesus seminar people, you know, the Jesus they come up with uh, looks a lot like you. It thinks that your car is not too flashy. <laughs> thinks that your income is not too yeah. much and thinks you're doing just, just right. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think there's a, a, a close connection between la- wrath and goodness and love. I mean, if just purely in human terms, if, if something is threatening uh, the children I love, if I don't feel anger and act in wrath against that thing, I'm, I'm a bad person. Yes, <laughs> if, yes, if, if, yes. Someone, if someone comes in to, to harm my wife and I say, Hey, you know what? Hey, I'm a, I'm a husband of love. You just have, like that, have that your British, way, you know, yeah. uh, honey, you just sit back. All right. I'll be, I'll be here. But it's that, that would be that would be an act of, but of hatred that's, and not goodness. That's right. But that's precisely the point that penal substitution maintains in that it directs God's righteous wrath towards us, towards me. I am the one crucified with Christ, mm-hmm. not that bad guy over there. Like I have been at the life I now live. I live by faith. Yeah. The so the enemy in this case is sin, right? I mean, the, yeah, the one who's coming in to destroy the bride is, is within the bride herself. And so, that's right. And so, that's right. Is you. So, that's yeah, that's right, right. sin nature right. put onto Christ's shoulders on the cross. And that right. was introduced Which to me. Which he takes, yes. That was introduced to me in a powerful way through a guy that interestingly enough gets uh, flack for, for being supposedly against substitutionary atonement by Gerhard Ferdy. I don't know if you've read anything of his. Um, he's a now dead uh, Lutheran scholar and he does have a um he was sort of trying to thread the needle i think a little bit by not coming out sort of fully in selmian so i don't want to have to defend him necessarily but i do think that his book on being a theologian excuse me of the cross pointed this out to me some 20 years ago now in a way that continues to reverberate and he talks about how if you take away penal substitution or or forensic justification or some sort of a personal appropriation of the reason that Christ died. You know, he has an essay called Caught in the Act. You know, it's like we, we were there. We are all bloodstained hands, as it were. Um, if you take that away, well, then it's impossible to not simply turn the gaze of the wrath of God towards those whom you think deserve it more than you. You know, we become victims along with Jesus from the, the you know, the political operatives or the, the, the religious people or the bad guys. And we don't, aren't complicit as bad guys, which of course goes well, then the, then to the, a, yeah, a direct reading of, of any of the, <laughs> in my yeah. opinion, the New Testament. I mean, you look at Paul, you know, uh, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So you could say, oh, well, that's, that's just a ransom theory. It's like, well, that's, uh, you know, yes, but how about... Um, uh, he became it, sin who knew no sin. Yeah, Second Corinthians 5. He, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, I was, I was grilled in the Greek on that in my German uh, oral rigorosums, and I... Um, I can't hear that as good news ever again as a result of that. But I, uh, but I, uh, but I, nevertheless, you know, this is the argument that that for a good man, someone might die; for a righteous man, someone might dare to die. But 
God shows his love for us in this is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and gave himself for us, that there is none righteous. No, not. I mean, you could go on and on and on, not to mention just the explicit addressing of this by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 about how the temple sacrifices right. and yeah. the shedding of blood was necessary for this forgiveness of sins. And, and, and it's just, now, because of what Christ has done in that exact same vein, it's no longer necessary. I, I, I do think part of the re- reaction, the negative reaction toward the doctrine does come from, I think you, you mentioned, or you, you, I think you nailed your article, Nick, earlier this week. It, it comes from the, the resistance and the, and the part of the human person to recognize the depth of yes. our sinfulness. You know, we can't be that bad that, that it would require God himself taking on human flesh and enduring the torments of hell. <laughs> surely, surely it's not that bad. So really what, what the cross is, is it's God showing his solidarity with us, knowing that we go through lots of pain, we've been victimized yeah. in various ways. And so the cross isn't really a display of justice. Why, and mercy. Yeah. You're just, it's really, it's really a, a display of, what human being, what human systems have done. That's right. And I'm included in that. I'm, in, I'm, I'm included as a victim in that. And so the cross is kind of my vindication and, it, and it, not in the way that we would understand it, but, but it shows really the, the, the injustice done to me because Christ is now coming to be a victim with me. Yes. And it further increases the guilt of those outside and beyond me those wicked systems of injustice that I'm with Christ fighting against. That's right. And so you, you become written into the story as part of the hero as as the hero victim uh, along with Jesus, rather than the one Jesus is coming to actually rescue from your own wickedness. Yes. Yes. And of course this was imported into uh, Anglican, modern Anglican theology through the new perspective. I mean, that was sort of part of the, you know, when we were all in seminary or at least around that time, um, this whole argument. And of course the caricatures abound there also, you know, um, divine child abuse and the easily dismissed caricatures of, of penal substitution. But I think that the, you know, the, the, the heart of it is that, that if there's, if there's any, again, this goes back to what we talked about last week with Galatians, you know, if there's any aspect of your life that doesn't, didn't need to be atoned for, you know, if there's any aspect of your, of your situation um, that, that you can stand on as your own sort of uh, righteousness before God, even if you're victimhood before God, well, then that's going to prohibit you from, from with the apostle Paul being crucified and raised to new life. You know, you're going to be sort of mildly, uh, uh, you, you know, annoyed or something. I have been, I have been displeased and, and displaced with Christ. You know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me or something. You're not going to have been, been crucified until I think um, you simply let the, you know, let the spirit fly through the preaching of the gospel and you say this cross for you uh, was taken by him uh, so that in him you could become God's righteousness, you know, the righteousness. So, yeah. It seems like on, on their own, none of the other theories are profound enough, right? Like if you are simply ransomed or simply loved, then it is still you who comes out of the prison cells. It's still the you that went in that comes out. It's only a crucifying death and resurrection that affords a new life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The, the me that needed to be atoned for is actually dead and a new me is alive. That's right. I think that's the whole point. I, I mean, I think, think there's, I don't think there's any way to, 
I don't think there's any way to get around it from the Bible. So that's just the starting point. And there's no more, you know, plenty of books written about that. I think that there's, there's a theological pastoral necessity. I think your last point was really good to realize that the, the substitutionary nature of it is, is the best news of all, you know, it actually takes, it actually takes um, the, the broken vessel and recreates it, you know, it doesn't just, just patch you up as it were. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting. I read that in an, in an essay by um, J.I. Packer, as I was sort of doing some thinking about this before, about what did the cross achieve? And he writes it this way in penal substitution. He says, the notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined, and so won for us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. To affirm penal substitution is to say that believers are in debt to Christ specifically for this, and that that is the mainspring of all their joy, peace, and praise, both now and and for eternity. That's pretty much the whole thing right there. And I feel, I don't feel, I, I believe, and I've seen, so I could be wrong, but that when this aspect of the cross is not emphasized, or if not, um, uh, certainly if, if it's denied outright, uh, then there cannot be that same expression of joy about the cross. Hmm. There can be a sort of reverence for it. They can be a, um, appreciation for it, you know, like Jesus, we appreciate you, you know, like you're our best friend. You're the nicest guy. You're our commanding Victor, you know, whatever you want to say, but you can't, I've rarely met anyone. I've never met anyone denying that who has the same events level of elation and unmitigated joy about right. you know, who tears up thinking about, about uh, the, the wonderful cross, you know I mean? Because remember that? Otherwise you're always wondering, was it too much? Like, was it, was it really so necessary? Well, and exactly, exactly. And it makes it wonder if it's real. Because if, if he came to release us from the oppressors, like, you know, he's not, I mean, where does that happen? When does that, when does that come into fruition? You know, if he came to, to overthrow all evil powers and principalities this side of heaven, well, you know, he's not doing a very good job, you know, or at least it's not at seemingly. Least at, at, least at the most, it's on the, in its very beginning stages. Exactly. And so as opposed to the reconciled, redeemed, crucified, and raised heart, which actually finds the ability to forgive legitimate trespassers in his or her life, you know, actually finds uh, people laying down their lives, not out of obligation, but out of sincere love, which is self-sacrifice. And, you know, and, and this is why John, first John, he talks about, and this is love, not that we love Christ God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an offering for our sins, a propitiation, you know, this word Himself. That's yeah. right. I mean, it's a root, it's a variant of hilasterion, this, this idea that he was a, an appeasement, an appeasement to the, to the, to the righteous indignation and loving, I don't want to say loving wrath, but I mean, I do appreciate what Matt says that, you know, that, that, that the flip side of, of, of a just love is a, is a righteous indignation. And that's what Jesus took on our behalf. And those people for whom he took that and see in him, their righteousness become preachers, you know, and, and hymn writers and reconciled, evangelists. Um, exactly. I mean, that's, and that's just the case. I mean, that's, that's the case. And so, you know, this fight will continue 
But I'm very wary of anyone that tries to defend God against what he has revealed about himself, um, because it's ultimately a fool's errand. I mean, literally, you know, the the beginning of wisdom is the fear of of God, you know. And so to begin to question whether or not God has sufficiently uh, revealed himself in the ways that you think make him look the most marketable um, is, is the mark of a fool, you know? And I think, I mean, I think that there's some historical within, within Protestantism, some, some differentiations, of course, um, you know, some, some subtleties like between Lutherans and Reformed and Baptists and things. But I think that the broad brush, you could see people like Calvin and Luther and Peter Martyr uh, Vermigli and, and uh, Zwingli. And I mean, even, even John Wesley, you know, who's not exactly, well, he's, he's got his, his sort of theological differences with some of those other names in there. Nevertheless, uh, would have considered this sort of personal, um, appropriation of the cross, which is, uh, which, is a, which is protected by the doctrine of penal substitution um, as the first step towards evangelical revival, you know, personal heart transformation. You know, it's not about us being saved. It's about me having been saved, but then me becomes part of us and we become the church by which people are saved, you know? And I think that's the, that when that's lost, you've, you've, turned, you've turned the entire gospel into, into something different then it seems to be what particularly the Apostle Paul, but not just Paul, but what the, 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 the sort of early um, apostles, the heart-wrenching um, sort of sincerity uh, about that they spoke about it with, you know, John's gospel, you know, that they must be born again, that there's this amazement at the fact that God deigned to save even us, you know, sinners. And I think that's where you know, I think, I mean, we're not going to lose it. I mean, again, we go back to last week, Matt. I mean, we do, we do have this protected in our 39 articles. I mean, expressly in article two, like I mentioned before, is that he has, he has come to, to reconcile us, uh, his father to us, which is an argument, you know, because one of the more, one of the more common arguments academically, at least, is that, you know, we had to be reconciled to God, but he has always been loving to us. We've just been rebellious, you know, so that's what the cross affected was, uh, you know, now stop playing kids, you know, this is for your own good. Um, no, he was justly and, and rightly angry at sin and sinners. Yes. So yes. He, he, he has to be reconciled. Yes, exactly. exactly. You know, and then, and of course, in the, in the 1662, what we're calling, I believe what we call the ancient standard text, of course, you know, Cranmer goes into the uh, Eucharistic liturgy and tried to pull, you know, he pulled out his dusty um, codex thesaurus to try to figure out every word for the cross, you know, one full, perfect, sufficient satisfaction <laughs> oblation for the sins of the world. He's like, this is what it was, all of this, you know, all right. of it. And yeah. I think that that's what is, I'm grateful for is that, you know, if we, like we said last week, if we can just double down on the, you know, what is, um, uh, Samuel uh, Loyenberger calls the uh, the immortal bequest of the prayer book. You know that, mm-hmm. that if we can double down on on what has gone before us, um, then we can we we can sustain and and protect some of these uh, crucial and essential uh, doctrines yeah. for the sake of the gospel. There, there's no there's no honest way to hold to the formularies and reject penal substitution. You do find guys. I, mean, I had a conversation one with one person. It sounded a lot like the guy that you were discussing at the beginning of this podcast, Nick, maybe it was, I don't know, but he was, he all, he also rejected whole cloth, this idea of penal substitution, but he, he tried to draw a distinction between penal substitution and substitution. And, uh, and it, I think he tried to do that because if you do go back past the reformation and you study the fathers, you find, you do find some substitutionary language. That's right. Um, and, and so the, I, th- I think one, 
stopgap is, okay, yes, there's substitutionary language in the fathers, but it was only that evil Calvin who came up with this idea of penal uh, penal substitution because he hated everybody and thought we yeah, were. Yeah, he hated everyone. Right. right. And he was a lawyer, by the way. And, and, and Swiss. Servitus. Right. I mean, they <laughs> made the watch. So that must be, there's, they're not all, they're not all right. So <laughs> exactly. But so, but the question is, okay, let's, let's, let's go with that. Um, if you have Christ as our substitute, yeah. what would that necessarily mean? That's right. That would necessarily mean that he, he endures what we ought to endure. And we need substitute. a substitute in some way. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it reminds me, you know, talking about the fathers, Matt, I, I picked up a long time ago, uh, Tom Odin's now deceased uh, justification reader. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's a great resource where he, he was weighing in on the new perspective and joint declaration arguments and just put together a collection of, um, of uh, snippets from uh, the church fathers about justification, including substitution and blood atonement and all sorts of things. Now, of course, you know, you have to, um, snippets are not ever going to give you a full uh, picture of it, but the idea somehow that it was foreign, the whole concept was foreign to the church fathers is false on its, on its face and also does no justice at all to the idea that it's actually pretty clear in Scripture. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really hard to... Let's not forget that St. Paul is earlier than the Church Father. That's right. That's right. And then, and, <laughs> right. And then Hebrews, um, and then, of course, the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, was, yeah. Was quite something. Um, so, well, you know, it's interesting you brought up Hebrews, because also you hear people argue, well, you know, doesn't don't we hear over and over again from the prophets that God doesn't, he's not interested in your sacrifices and offerings. He wants your you know, good behavior instead. And, uh, and, and yes, the prophets do say that in various places, but the author of Hebrews uses that very statement on the part of God um, to point out the reason he doesn't, require our offerings and sacrifices is because a body he's prepared yes and that body is is christ himself who yes. comes well, to be the last final perfect sacrifice that's right uh, for for our sins well it's like he says in his high priestly prayer even this week's gospel lesson you know his hour has come like he's you know right. throughout the gospels like my hour is not yet here but now it is here and what is yeah. his hour to do is to to be the the lamb of god you know yeah. takes away the sins of the world i mean i think you know, here's here's what I want to say. I want to I want to give a, a little bit of a of a bone to the people who are against it because there is a against penal substitutionary atonement because like everything, you know, our anthropology, you know, what did what did a teacher once say that anthropology determines our teleology? You know, like the the, the child is the father of the man, you know, sort of thing. But you know, people have run into a a cold calculus, as what I mentioned before, where they say, you know, this this is how bad you are. This is how good Jesus is. This is the contract that has been made with God. And so there you go, you know, believe it or, or you're, you're, you're dead for all eternity. Now there may be some, 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 some practical truth in that, but the way that that is communicated in many people's lives has been left them um, cold. And the way that the person communicating it has seemed like perhaps they either don't believe it or they're actually sort of glad that most people aren't, if that makes any sense, you know? And so I think that, that to be fair to it, I think that's what Ferdy was trying to get around was this idea that fundamentally our theology about God is not going to be sufficient, but the proclamation of God by the power of the Spirit is going to bring dead people to new life by faith. 
And so that when we hold this truth, um, we need to hold it with the, with the reverence. You know, it's like, the, it's like when we, people talk about hell, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of, sort of a glimpse in people's eyes, some people's when they talk about hell, there should be an incredible, incredible yeah. sense of sobriety yeah. and, yeah. and solemnity to, the, to even the possibility that any one person would be, would be sent there, much less many. And like that, I think that the, the, you know, it's like the old hymn, the Isaac Watts hymn, you know, sometimes it makes me want to tremble, you know, yeah. you know went, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I mean, that's right. the, that's the posture. I think if we, if we can, can aim for that, or at least pray for that to be, to be the way about which we speak, the, the, uh, particularly this doctrine, it would be um, to our benefit. Yeah. One last thing, I probably yeah. ran out of time, but um, you know, just on a pastoral level, I, I can't imagine the ramifications for doing away with, with this doctrine. When a parishioner comes to me, you know, burdened with, with guilt because of what he or she has done. And, you know, if I only had the Chris's Victor model, uh, you know, okay. Yeah. Well, Christ has done away with, he's gained victory over death and Satan on your behalf. But, you know, I guess if you're guilt, you're going to go have to see, go, go see a Freudian psychologist or something because right. I can't really help you. But, right. But we can, we can say, look, Amen. look at the cross that your, your, your God loves you and yeah. he has come and he's taken your sin, all of it uh, away. Um, and he's borne it himself on, on, on the cross. And so the guilt you're feeling is real. Uh, but, but they're not, the death of Christ is even more real and more powerful than what your heart is telling you right now. Amen. You have been made new. Yeah. Well, that's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. Right. And no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who died right. for me. I mean, that's, that's the confession that is elicited from penal substitutionary atonement and not the other two. Uh, but all of them together can elicit a hearty amen, of course. Yes. Uh, which is what we, amen. You know. Well, thank you guys so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, J.D. Koch. Matt Kennedy, I'm Nick. You out there in podcast land, thank you for spending your time with us. We will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 